Well, it's been a year, and it's been a year where grumbling, I think, has become acceptable conversation. What do you reckon? Grumbling about the health risks of a pandemic, grumbling about the inconveniences of lockdown and closures, grumbling about the boredom or, or maybe the tensions of working from home, depending whether you're working on your own or you've got a house full. <laughs> grumbling about not being able to travel, too many Zoom meetings, wearing masks, the, li the list goes on and on, doesn't it? But is grumbling acceptable for God's people? Uh, there's a type of grumbling that we find all through the Psalms. Uh, they're called Psalms of Lament. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry out to God because our world is broken. God encourages us to hand over our pain and our requests to him because he's God and we're not. But then there's the grumbling that we see in today's chapters of Exodus, which is something different. It begins with forgetfulness. It's only days since God miraculously rescued them from slavery, destroyed Egypt's army, but they've forgotten it. And so they don't trust that he'll look after them moving forward. They've forgotten how bad Egypt was, and so they're not content with what they have at the moment. They're ungrateful. That's what separates grumbling from lament, godly lament. Here's my working definition. Uh, what's wrong with grumbling? It, it's about a lack of gratitude, contentment and faith. Grumbling's about a lack of con gr uh, gratitude, contentment and faith. We see grumbling again and again through these chapters, putting God to the test. And yet despite their grumbling, again and again we see God passing that test, graciously providing what they need. And then we see him giving opportunity to express gratitude at his provision. What if we could learn a lesson from Israel? What if instead of grumbling, we learn to rejoice, express gratitude, trust God to provide, trusted that he'd work good for all things, through all things? What if we learned to see with the eyes of faith for his good hand at work in the midst of the stress? I reckon it would transform our conversations with people. It would transform the way we look at life. Well, we're picking up the story. Uh, Exodus 15, verse 22. Israel's just crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's been completely wiped out. God has miraculously saved Israel. And they've sung his praises. 1521. 1522. One short verse later. It's only three days. They've marched through the desert and they're running out of water. Finally, they find a spring. But when they start drinking, they, they spit it out in disgust. It, it's salty. It's full of minerals. It's like drinking seawater. They could have done that back at the Red Sea. What did they need to travel through the desert for? And so verse 24, they grumble to Moses. What are we to drink? And then Moses cries out to God. Verse 25, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water and the water became sweet, drinkable. Protest and provision. Grumbling and grace. They're thirsty, he gives them water. Not because they deserve it, but simply because of who he is. But look at what else he does. He gives the chance to show gratitude. 
He shows grace, they get to show gratitude. He gives them a test. Halfway through verse 25. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Israel had taken their eyes off God. They doubted, but nevertheless they'd been shown grace. And now they have a chance to show gratitude, to listen to God's commands, to do what's right. And if they pass, then the curses of disobedience won't fall on them. And then verse 27, to to reinforce God's undeserved goodness, to to back up this promise of blessing, this test, uh, they come to the spring of Elim. There's no salty water. There's 12 springs. There's one for each tribe. And there's 70 palm trees to top it off. Grumbling, grace, gratitude. Uh, Look out for that pattern as we keep moving. Episode 2, chapter 16, uh, the chapter Melba read for us. Uh, They move on from the spring of Elim. Uh, It's been one month since Israel left Egypt. 30 whole days. Uh, How much food can you carry when you're leaving Egypt with all you you own? I reckon about a month. Uh, I think here they've probably come to the end of their food stores. So what do they do? They grumble. Verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The food's running out. Their stomachs are grumbling and so they grumble. It'd be hilarious if it wasn't so sad, wouldn't it? This is the ultimate in selective amnesia, forgetting the worst bits of their years of suffering. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, one month of freedom, and all they want is to go back to Egypt. God has tested them, and it hasn't taken them long to completely fail. Israel grumbles. How does God respond? Well, once again, he shows grace. Look at verse 7 and also in verse 12. He tells Moses, I've heard their grumbling. Now, I think that actually sounds ominous to me. <laughs> I've heard their grumbling. It would be ominous if God's response was to give them what they deserve. But, but instead he hears their grumbling and he provides. He promises meat in the evening and bread in the morning, a two-course heavenly banquet, completely undeserved. And that's what happens. Verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Uh, In Aramaic, mana. But they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Grumbling and grace the Lord provides. But once again, notice how God then gives them the opportunity to show gratitude for his provision. The gift comes with another test. 
uh, back in verses 4 and 5, uh, the test is going to come in two parts. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in and that's to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. He provides for them, but he tests them. He shows grace, but he expects obedience to see whether they will trust him or not. So here's how the testing worked. First he tells them to collect just enough for one day, no more. But like most of us in the situation where there's plenty there to be collected, we just can't help collecting a little bit more than we need, just in case, for a rainy day. But look what happened. God tested them and they failed because they didn't trust God. Over to verse 19. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. It's a test in two parts. They've failed part A. What about part B? Well, on Friday, God said to collect twice as much because there wouldn't be any on the Saturday because God wanted them to rest, not to collect food. That's the way it happened. Twice as much was collected on Friday. And verse 24, instead of going off, the the remainder actually lasted and it kept until Saturday. And then in verse 25, Moses explains all of this to them. Uh, Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Uh, But look at verse 27. Uh, Some of the people didn't collect double on Friday. Uh, Or maybe they did collect double, but they also went out Saturday. Maybe they were extra hungry. Uh, But they went out Saturday when they were supposed to be resting. And I just can't help wondering if maybe it was the same group of people who'd collected too much during the week and it had gone off. And now they wanted to make sure it didn't go off again and they went back out on Saturday for more. And God had a message for Moses for these people who failed the test again. How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. God did it that way for a reason. For a couple of reasons. For one thing, he wanted the people to rest. Secondly, he actually wanted to test their obedience. Resting was a test of obedience. Obedience, which was in response to the grace they'd been shown of being given double. Do you notice how it's not just keep the Sabbath, it's keep the Sabbath to the Lord. Their act of keeping the Sabbath is to express their gratitude that God has provided. They stop working in recognition that God is at work for them. Failing to work is an expression of gratitude at a God who works, who provides. Grumbling, grace, gratitude. 
Next up, chapter 17. This story is a familiar one. We didn't read it, but it sort of sounds like we have already read it. Uh, verse uh, 1, there's more travelling uh, and there's more thirsty people. And then in verse 2, we see, so they quarrelled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out, up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Once again, grumbling. But notice this time it's the people who put God to the test. Rather than responding to God's test by obeying him, they grumble, they fail the test, and, and by grumbling they put God to the test. They're basically saying as they grumble, what are you going to do for us, God? How much grace are you going to show us? Well, they may fail God's test, but he doesn't fail their test. Uh, verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Once again, God provides, despite them not deserving it, despite their doubting. Uh, and in verse 7, Moses even gives the place a couple of nicknames. Testing, quarrelling, he calls them because the Israelites quarrelled and tested the Lord. They tested the Lord, saying, verse 7, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? I reckon there's a cynicism there, a doubt that God is good, a doubt that he's, that he's able to look after them, a questioning, will he provide? Is he looking? Does he care? And it's that very question, is the Lord among us or not, that I think God answers in the next couple of sections. Because God continues to provide, to, to show that he is among them. He provides in wartime, chapter 17. He provides in peacetime, chapter 18. He brings victories over the Amalekites in 17. He provides judges to help Moses govern the people in chapter 18. Now, now they're great stories. We don't have time to look at them today. Instead, I want to come back to that question that we began with. What if we were to learn a lesson from Israel and moved from grumbling to gratitude? The truth is, uh, as Mark pointed out to us in his introduction, we've been saved from a much greater enemy than Egypt. We've been saved from a much greater slavery than forced labour. If if we are Christian, we've been saved from the power and the consequences of our sin. We've been rescued from God's anger and judgment. We've been put right with him through trusting Jesus. And we're now joined to Jesus. That's a wonderful act of salvation. And that should colour the way we think about our present life. Knowing that truth should impact how we think about life. I want us to just think about the logic of, of that in the start of Romans 5. 
And it begins by focusing on what God has done for us in the past and how that means we have the power to rejoice in our present. So here's what Romans 5 says. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character and character, hope. Focusing on what God has already done for us when he saved us, rejoicing in the experience of your relationship with him, We've got peace, we've got access, we've been put right. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. All things about a present experience. Rejoicing in that will give you the tools and the perspective to rejoice in the pain of life. The gospel, living, knowing, remembering, rejoicing in the gospel, is the key that Move us, will move us from grumbling into gratitude. The gospel is the key that moves us from grumbling to gratitude. The God who saved you will never desert you. Or as Romans 8.32 says, If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, with his son, graciously give us all things? Focusing on the gospel in the past helps us to trust him to provide for us in the present. Now, Paul wrote all of these words, but he didn't just write these words, he lived them. He lived them. Uh, The letter to Philippians uh, was written from prison, but it's also called the letter of joy uh, because again and again Paul says to rejoice as he writes from prison. Uh, He rejoices that he's stuck in prison uh, because in chapter 1, verse 13... He says it becomes clear that throughout it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And so he can say in verse 18, and because of this, because I can rejoice, uh, because people know I'm in in prison for Christ, because of this I rejoice. Yes, I'll continue to rejoice. He goes on, it, it even looks like he's going to be executed. He's in prison, it looks like he'll be executed. But not even the threat of death can stop his joy because he knows that if he were to die, he would be better off because he'll get to be with Jesus. And he says in chapter 1, verse 21, for, for, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me, it's even better. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he encourages them with these words, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember what we said about Romans 5? Live out the gratitude of people who've been shown grace. Remind yourselves that you've been shown grace. The gospel says to you, you don't deserve saving but God has saved you. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of that. Live that out in the way you live. 
Then in chapter 2, verse 14, he turns it around from the positive of joy to the negative of grumbling. And he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars. It's easy to do things that you enjoy without grumbling, isn't it? It's easy to do the things you like without grumbling. But Paul says do everything without grumbling. Do nothing with grumbling. Wake up with a sore throat. Do it without grumbling. Receive criticism. Do it without grumbling. Sit in traffic. Do it without grumbling. Pay a parking ticket. Do it without grumbling. Cook dinner for an ungrateful family again. Do it without grumbling. Sit through another Zoom meeting. Do it without grumbling. Do everything without grumbling. If we could actually live like that in the midst of a grumbling society, we'd look different, wouldn't we? We would look like as different as stars in the night sky look. Do that and you'll actually show yourselves to be children of your father. You'll show yourselves to be trusting children of a generous heavenly father who cares for you and gives you good things. Not grumbling. It's an attitude that flows from your relationship with uh, your loving heavenly father. Into chapter 3, I think that's what it means when he says rejoice in the Lord. Joy that flows from being connected to the Lord. It flows from your relationship. Joy comes because you're connected to a Father who provides and loves and cares. Paul goes on, chapter 3, to say uh, he, it's a treasure he would give up everything for. To know God, to be connected to him is his top priority and everything else is worthless. And he says in 3.8, some of my favourite verses in the whole Bible... I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found uh, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. For Paul, that's where his joy and his gratitude comes from. That's what stops grumbling. That's the secret of being content. Because what we have in Jesus is worth far more than anything else the world can offer us. And if we've got that, then we've got no need to grumble. What we have in Jesus is worth far more than anything else. And so Paul's able to say in chapter 4, verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's the strength to be content, the strength to not grumble, but instead to show gratitude, to trust the God who saved you, who you're joined to, the Father who cares for you. 
Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice and don't grumble. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, this is a, seems like such a simple command, uh, don't grumble. And yet it's so easy for us to fall into it, to stumble into it. It, it, it comes so naturally for us. We pray that you would help us to focus on the Lord Jesus, for those of us who know him, to rejoice in that. For those who don't yet know him, help us to see him and to trust him, to be saved by him. Please open our eyes that we might see the glory of what you've given us in Jesus. And we pray that that would flow over into gratefulness and uh, and we might live that out uh, in not being... Uh, sorry, in being content. Uh, And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.